0: edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 11th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin broadcasting to you live from Midori House here in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up, we'll have a look through the front pages with the journalist Simon Brook and...
1: We learned all this from the entrancing saga of the Chinese spy balloon prompting certain sectors of America's media and politics... Exactly if you're wondering the ones you'd expect to go full chicken little.
0: Andrew Miller gives us his take on the last 7 days. That's all coming up here in the next 30 minutes. But first, here's the news. Russian missiles hit power facilities across Ukraine last night. Ukrainian officials said the long-awaited Russian offensive is underway in the east. The White House said President Joe Biden will travel to Poland later this month to show support for Kyiv ahead of the first anniversary of Russia's invasion on February the twenty-fourth, and make clear additional security assistance and aid will be coming from the United States. In Turkey, rescue crews saved a 10-day-old baby and his mother trapped in the ruins of a building on Friday and dug several people out from other sites. As President Tayyip Erdogan said, authorities should have reacted faster to this week's huge earthquake. The confirmed death toll from the deadliest quake in the region in two decades stood at more than 23,700 across southern Turkey and northwest Syria four days after it hit. A US fighter jet has shot down an unidentified object flying high over Alaska, US officials said, less than a week after the military brought down a Chinese balloon that had flown across the United States. The latest craft was about the size of a small car, but it's not known who owns it and it's unclear where it began its flight. And Toronto Mayor John Tory resigned abruptly on Friday, shortly after the Toronto Star newspaper reported that he'd had an affair with a much younger staff member. Tory, 68, acknowledged the relationship in a statement announcing his departure, saying it had ended earlier this year and the employee had left City Hall. He apologised to his family and the people of Toronto and said he would work with City employees and the deputy mayor, Jennifer McKelvey, to ensure an orderly transition to a new administration. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, let's have a look at the day's papers now with Simon Brook, who's a journalist and communications consultant. Simon, just picking up on that last story, he apologised to his family and to the people of Toronto. Nothing about the much younger woman who's, in fact, had to leave her job.
2: Yeah, it's, it's always the way, isn't it, in these situations? So, um, yeah, the the the, and what's so awful about these uh, when these things happen is, of course, what's going to happen to her, really? She's going to spend the rest of her life with that kind of Monica Lewinsky. Monica, isn't she, if you like? that That Absolutely. should be known as the woman who had the affair with the... the yeah. The politician.
0: Although Lewinsky's been amazing in her kind of reinvention of herself, as has Jennifer Arcurio, actually, the, the woman who had the pole dancing <laughs> apartment yeah. that had an affair with yeah. Boris Johnson.
2: Yeah, it, well, it's interesting Monica Lewinsky, in particular, you're right, she turned around the idea of the victim. Uh, the the person who is on the the receiving end of it, actually, to to campaign and really talk about these issues and stuff. And and as I say, I like the idea of somebody who might be seen as a victim, turns themselves into a survivor to campaign and say, actually, I've got nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, You know, she was a younger woman uh, who who was in a position with a much older, more, well, the most powerful man in the world. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about victims and survivors because picking up on another story in our headlines, and of course it's one that's going to dominate the papers for weeks, if not months, or indeed years, it's the awful, awful tragedy in Turkey and Syria. Um, Elif Shafak is one of the biggest and best Turkish writers. She's actually banned from Turkey. She doesn't Mm. go there anymore. Mm. Uh, She believes her life would be in danger if she went Mm. there. Uh, She's incredibly articulate and she's a beautiful writer and she's written a wonderful piece in the FT about the earthquake and the response to it
2: she has yes I mean, she begins the piece by talking about the fact that she was in Istanbul on uh, August the 17th 1999 when the Izmit earthquake struck um, some 18,000 people died that night she writes um, and yeah, it's a, it's a really savage criticism of the Turkish government of uh, the government of President Erdogan pointing out that um, the authorities as she said gave fiery speeches about how there will be stricter big building regulations it's true the regulations were tightened she writes but it was all on paper never fully implemented it was all empty words and uh, as i say it's a savage criticism of president erdoğan's government and i think it's interesting towards the end of obviously the earthquake struck on monday and there's still quite rightly huge focus on the the rescue efforts isn't there and as you had in the the headlines there are some amazing wonderful human stories of survival but it's interesting how as the de- in the last 24 hours or something, 48 hours there's been more criticism of Erdogan and questions about corruption about whether the uh, Turkish government is not providing enough support you know, people on the ground pointing out that the international aid effort has been very effective, you know, those people are, are there providing support and dragging people out of the the ruins, but the the Turkish authorities themselves have not been so present and as Elif Shafak writes uh, so movingly in this piece you know, this this is these buildings were not built the way they should be. And, you know, that is very often due to sort of corruption... And, you know, she says that scientists and engineers who raised the alarm over this were accused of fear-mongering. Well, so wrong. Mm
0: -hmm. Our own Hannah Lucinda-Smith, who's our Istanbul correspondent, has been getting a front-page splash almost every day in The Times this week. Uh, And she, of course, has been right at the border with Syria, looking at what's going on there. And the rescue efforts in Syria, of course, severely hampered by 12 years of of terrible unrest and chaos, the fact that much of that terror, territories held by rebels uh, and, and very little help getting in there.
2: It, it is absolutely tragic, isn't it? I mean, especially Aleppo, for instance, um, you know, one of the most beautiful historic cities I- in the world. Uh, and yet it's destroyed because of the civil war in in syria and there's there's also been reports as well this week of of children who whose whole lives have been lived through this civil war, who've never known peace, and now this latest thing is happening, and their parents are having to explain this isn't men shooting and bombing us this time it's the earth moving so there is something really tragic about uh, an area of the, the world which has suffered so badly because of man-made hatred and destruction and now the natural world seems to be doing something as well it's, it's so cruel to it and, and as you say the fact that uh, you know the infrastructure is destroyed the roads are destroyed there are still uh, battles going on between the rebels and the government or whatever and this is preventing that that aid from getting through so it just seems uh, really cruel somehow that a part of the world that suffered so red- so much already should be suffering this way as well. Mm-hmm. But I mean, as I say, Aleph Shafak's piece is, is it a real rallying call, I think, for perhaps the opposition leaders, certainly the international community to say that not only is Erdogan uh, a dictator in so many ways, we know he's put so many journalists in prison which is terrible but if he can't deliver if his government is responsible for uh, buildings not being built the way they should if he can't deliver the human aid that people need in this terrible situation it does look like things are getting pretty bad for him
0: and many papers are picking up on the whole community aspect the fact that entire communities are wiped out uh, an apartment block with you know 15 families in it just three surviving that kind of thing and it just what does that do to the very fabric of, of 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 a town of a village, it's it's so tragic.
2: It really is. Yes, you, as you say, if you the whole community is destroyed, um, you know those networks. I mean, it will be just looking at the numbers. You can imagine it'll be those areas that were have been hit by the the earthquake. Everybody will know somebody who died, won't they? Do you know what I mean? There will not. There'll hardly be a single family that is uh, that is intact, if you like. And I think all the other terrible thing that happens in these situations is. Uh, I'm just reading a book actually about the Holocaust. And uh, there you get the sort of survivor's guilt. And, you know, there will be people who wondered why, why did I survive and my brother, my neighbor didn't. Somebody in the next room died and I'm still here. Uh, and so, yeah, as you said, this is a story that will go on for months and years ahead because of that sort of knock on effect, the emotional uh, effect of this terrible tragedy. So even when the physical wounds are healed and the buildings are built and let us hope this time they're built to be earthquake proof, there will still be that kind of psychological impact going mm. on, won't there?
0: Yesterday on The Globalist I spoke to the mayor of Tirana in Albania and of course mm. he, that that uh, Tirana suffered a terrible earthquake two, four years ago and he was saying their priority was to get people rehomed and rehomed in the area so the kids could carry on going to school, so the community could stay together and that was his advice to Turkey was just make sure everybody has access to water, to, to, to electricity, to food and clothing uh, and keep them together because that's how you start to rebuild. Yeah. Um, if people want to know more about Elif Shafak, she really is the most extraordinary writer or indeed Ahmet Altan who is one of the journalists who was repeatedly arrested uh, by the Turkish authorities. Both of those interviews can be found in the archives of Meet the Writers. Uh, now, let's hear from 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 Andrew Muller about what we learned this week.
1: We learned this week that the US Air Force's F-22 Raptor stealth fighter, long controversial, horrendously expensive and eventually abandoned, had at last proved its worth in air-to-air combat a mere decade or so after the last one was delivered. We learned via an engagement off the Carolina coast that the F-22 is more than a match in a cloudless sky for an undefended slow-moving target with a diameter of around 60 metres. Make no mistake about it, as we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country and we did. We learned all this and more besides from the entrancing saga of the Chinese spy balloon, which spent much of last week adrift across the United States, prompting certain sectors of America's media and politics, exactly if you're wondering, the ones you'd expect, to go full chicken little. It's China. Did it drop and disperse surveillance products powered by solar energy? to allow unlimited surveillance. And the message they were trying
3: to send is uh, what they believe internally, and that is that the United States is a once great superpower that's hollowed out, that's in decline.
2: Has our homeland been damaged by this balloon?
1: Is it bioweapons in that balloon? Did that balloon take off from Wuhan? We don't know anything about it. And you don't have any evidence that this no, balloon can take
2: I asked a question. I mean, what, what is in the balloon? This is something that we believe the, the White House should have advised us on. They should have had a briefing to tell us what this was. I mean, back home in Kentucky, this is all anybody talks about.
1: It does doubtless make a change from pointing at aeroplanes. We did learn, however, that there actually were arguably grounds for an amount of prudent circumspection prior to scrambling some poor pilot who will spend the rest of his career being gigglingly addressed by the call sign Dirigible. And we learned this from US Secretary of Transportation and lead character in a sappy film about an idealistic schoolteacher who turns a class of incorrigible teenage gangsters into chess grandmasters or something, Pete Buttigieg.
2: This thing was above American airspace in terms of where most of the uh, aircraft fly. And we have the most complicated national airspace in the world. This thing is larger, the, the, the metal equipment there is larger than a bus. When they did shoot it down, the debris field was about seven miles.
1: We learned, however, that China's spy balloon was not the only bag of hot air operating in the service of a hostile foreign power.
2: The Russian invasion of Ukraine was not unprovoked.
1: We learned that Roger Waters, out of profoundly boring rock band Pink Floyd, had been invited by Russia to address a visibly bewildered UN Security Council on the subject of Russia's ongoing rampage in Ukraine, despite this making precisely as much sense as the UNSC being subjected to the views of Rick Wakeman on the peace process in Tigray, or Roger Daltrey on the ongoing upheavals in Peru, or really whichever 70s vintage musician you like on whatever current crisis you can name, go on, give the wheel a spin.
3: Mick Fleetwood on The Unrest in Haiti.
1: Sure, why not? We learned subsequent to Waters' disquisition that, if we're honest, Ukraine's retaliatory derisive Pink Floyd reference game needs an amount of work. Ukraine's ambassador to the UN, Sergei Kislitskyer, struck back as follows, as will now be read by Monocle24's laboured prog references desk chief, Tom Webb. How sad for his former fans to see him accepting the role of just another brick in the wall the wall of russian disinformation and propaganda <coughs> well quite wouldn't open with it etc especially as comfortably dumb was right there as were wish you weren't here dark side of the goon and at a push wine on you tedious foil-hatted dingbat <laughs> Most importantly of all, however, we learned that the time spent in broadly similar circumstances about six months ago getting everyone to make a chorus addressing the extent to which Pink Floyd suck out loud was not, despite what certain Monocle 24 staff said at the time, wasted.
3: Is Pink Floyd oh, still a thing? Yeah. They not even wear it.
1: that much work. Is it? I really don't suck. like Did you exchange? Righto. Here in the UK, meanwhile, we learned that Liz Truss Yay! Mm. Yay! Woo! Wow! Yay! Oh my god! Had been right all along. Well, I,
3: could I, be I mean, don't convinced. Don't buy it. I'm yes. sorry, no, I just don't buy it. All. I don't know.
1: We learned this from no less an authority than... Liz Truss, who broke an insufficiently long silence to explain at over-generous expanse across the pages of a newspaper and in an accompanying interview that she was whisked from 10 Downing Street after only 49 days, not due to her own hubris or ineptitude, but thanks to the furtive machinations of a sinister left-wing conspiracy, including such noted sinister left-wing conspirators as the International Monetary Fund, the Bank of England and the Parliamentary Conservative Party. We learned that, though for most of us, getting thrown out of a terrace house after seven weeks of chaos is something we get out of our system when we're students and wish never to speak of again, Truss is neither daunted nor repentant and at any rate, everything was everybody else's fault.
0: The political support I had during the my time in Number 10... It wasn't enough to achieve the type of bold reforms I was
1: looking to achieve. We also learned circa my time in number 10 there of a new world record for heaviest lifting ever done by a subclause. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Miller.
0: Thank you very much to Andrew uh, Simon Brooke is still with me Simon it's all the fault of the left wing economic establishment I'm trying to actually get that sentence into into almost everything I say because it feels like a great excuse right
2: Yeah absolutely and the fact that the poor thing Liz Truss wasn't warned which even though she went out of her way specifically <clears throat> not to be warned by anybody seems amazing but yeah I, I don't know as, as a <clears throat> excuse me, one uh, Tory politician was saying to me she's notoriously tin-eared when it comes to Politics and then to stand up now and say that it's everybody else's fault and take no responsibility herself sounds absolutely amazing. Uh, And I, uh, yeah, as I say, this this Tory MP was saying to me, there's the Tory MPs are actually particularly keen for just to shut up and just not say anything, but yeah. uh, there you go. That's, I was always possible.
0: team letters. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, this balloon, so first of all, we had the Chinese balloon yeah. and Joe this Biden week. came under huge pressure, mm. particularly from Republicans, yeah. to just shoot it down, yeah. uh, which he did, e- yeah. eventually. Yeah. Um, but now there's another one and that's been shot down before any pesky members of the public could photograph it and put it out there.
2: Yeah, it's interesting mm. as you say, uh, the uh, President President Biden did come under great uh, pressure and and, uh, lots of attacks from the uh, the Republicans who accused him of vacillating and not taking action. Uh, But of course, it was pointed out that actually it was difficult to shoot this... uh, this Chinese balloon down earlier in the week, because the danger was that it would fall onto people and people's houses and things. So actually, uh, the authorities recommended that he waited a while until it was in a position where they could shoot it down safely. But yeah, the New York Times leading this morning on a another, uh, well, this, nobody knows what this is, it could be a balloon, but certainly an unidentified object which has floated over the frozen water's of alaska and actually as you say has been shot down so um it's interesting how there's a sort of two political sort of two uh, attacks here on the president both on the chinese who have said what on earth are you doing this was just a weather balloon whatever but then also from his republican opponents who were also having a, a go at him what's interesting about this particular object is that of course we don't know what it is and uh, we don't know if it, let alone whether it's chinese or not but it does it's interesting how the the temperature is rising if you like if there's a connection with a um, weather balloon there, sorry, but anyway, that in the climate, uh, the current climate, whatever, real concern that anything that is floating over the US that we that is unidentified will probably be shot down for domestic political reasons, if not uh, international defence considerations.
0: I mean, there were so many questions because the the uh, the first balloon came on the eve of what was meant to be Antony Blinken's visit to Beijing, and and I, I wonder if this either shows that there's just a lack of joined up thinking that the uh, Chinese authorities wanted to go ahead, but whoever's in charge of that bit of their. Uh, operation just didn't think about it just did it because that's what they do and let's face it, it's very very common I'm, I'm quite sure the US has similar balloons over China I mean exactly. there's, you know, this is going on or could it have been some deliberate fly in the ointment to scupper those talks, I mean that's that's another possible
2: could be anything, Could it? I mean the consensus seems to be that there's something the Chinese government between the President and his uh, d- Defence Ministry and technicians that, that there was a lack of joint up thinking, as you say, that she uh, didn't know that this thing was happening and that does seem to be the consensus but given that Biden has made it clear right from the beginning of his presidency that he's, even before actually, that he's very much a China hawk uh, it does seem clear that, you know, whatever China does, he is going to be looking at very carefully and uh, and given a sort of s- through a sceptical lens, if you like, so um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how this story will pan out over the next few weeks and what will be the next object that will float over the US um, and be accused of being a Chinese uh, spy
0: balloon. Mm, And of course, very little is known about this one. We know it's the size of a car, uh, but they don't know where it came from, who it belongs to, or anything. Now, I'm quite sure you've met my Monocle 24 colleague, our senior producer, Marcus Hippie. I have indeed, yes. Uh, He is a charming man, a lovely man, a very good-looking man. Mm -hmm. I have to say, although he's humorous, he makes me laugh, I can't really recall him smiling. He's quite lugubrious. (laughs) Is that a Finnish thing, I wonder? Well, here's the thing. The Times of <laughs> India, however, says, I think Marcus is bucking this trend. Uh, the Times of India says, Finland is the happiest country in the world.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? The, the it, it has a, a list of the world's happiest countries and obviously Denmark we know as well. But uh, uh, the w, I think it's, yeah, the uh, United Nations, isn't it, uh, has uh, done this list as they do every year of the, the world's happiest countries. Uh, Country. And yes, Swin- uh, Swindon, Finland, <laughs> Swindon, interesting. Uh, f- Finland, <laughs> that's not Swindon. Finland does seem to top it. So, um, yeah, it, the, the leading the happiness chart as the uh, Times of India says the beautiful Finland, the country who has been the top uh, five lists for a decade, which means they're doing something right to maintain this position. Uh, number two is Denmark, uh, which finds itself in second spot with low uh, income inequality and excellent education and healthcare systems. But what, what surprised me, actually, and then we've also got Iceland, we've got uh, Switzerland, we've got the Netherlands... Uh, We've got Luxembourg as well. So I'm not sure if Luxembourg is Northern European, but it did strike me that all these top happy countries do tend to be in the north of Europe or the north of the Northern Hemisphere. I wonder why that is.
0: I I wonder too, and I wonder if that's about to change. I mean, certainly Denmark is looking at various political ructions at the moment.
2: Yes, and Sweden as well. Um, Yes, there's been a lot of stories recently about uh, the gun crime in Sweden or something. So is that the uh, us miserable British media or or media around the rest of the world? looking at these countries and thinking it's not fair we'll have a pop at them but i do remember feeling a couple of years ago that one of the most miserable countries in the world is italy which really surprised me you know with wonderful food great art opera they should be wonderful temperatures you know climate they should be euphoric shouldn't and actually they're completely miserable
0: yeah Uh, we often used to say in zimbabwe how much is sunshine worth because people like you're in this country the sun shines it's beautiful it's like yeah but at some point (sighs) <laughs> you need a little bit more than that.
2: Still got to go and put gas in the car and get some food and, yeah, that, good education, exactly. I suppose. Exactly.
0: But so. I'm very pleased to see that Switzerland, because of course we have a big bureau in Zurich. Absolutely. Uh, it's in fourth position because of uh, mm. factors like health and life expectancy. And
2: chocolate, perhaps? And chocolate.
0: <laughs> and beautiful views, actually. Oh, I, yeah, I love yeah, Switzerland Absolutely.
2: Yeah, so do I. Yeah, wonderful.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, that's it, really, from, from you, Simon. Thank you so much for, you. for being with us today. Uh, and. Uh, yeah, I think um, we will have you back on the programme, I'm quite sure. I would very, love to very come very back, soon. thank you. <laughs> <Very> <laughs> You're much. listening to Monocle on Saturday. Monocle's February issue celebrates places that work, providing a roll call of appealing outposts that will inspire and encourage you for the new year ahead. From a top transport system to a seemly city hall or cultural HQ. Elsewhere in the issue, we meet the perky Brazilian coffee company that has crossed to Europe with ease and visit the car plant in Morocco that's revving up the nation's commitment to renewables.
3: And then, as usual, there are reviews of the best hotels, restaurants and travel hotspots to pack your diary with throughout 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's February issue today or subscribe to get instant access online.
0: The post-Second World War abstract expressionist art movement is most commonly associated with American men, such as Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko. In fact, the movement was global, and many female artists around the world produced their own compositions of expressionism and action paintings in similar responses to the anxieties of the time. A new exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery in London, Action, Gesture, Paint, revises the dominant narrative about abstract expressionism with 150 works by over 80 artists. monocle Sophie Monaghan Coombs went along to meet curator Laura Smith, who began by describing some of her favourite pieces on show.
3: So one of my favorite discoveries in the exhibition is a Japanese artist called Yuki Katsura who was working in Japan before the war and then after the war relocated to New York while she was in Japan she was very much encouraged to paint in a very social realist style so she trained in still life painting very very meticulously figurative painting and when she moved to New York she fully embraced the scene of gestural abstraction and became close friends with a lot of the New York artists that are in the show, like Helen Frankenthaler and Lee Krasner. And... Her work is really beautiful because it really combines her Japanese influence with what she discovered in New York. So she paints onto Japanese washi paper these huge canvases that are kind of colour field paintings. So they're large swathes of colour, but painted onto this very, very thin paper that's laid on top of the canvas. So it gives it this really strange depth, almost like a collage, and I think texturally that's one of the most exciting things in the show and I hadn't been aware of her work and so was really thrilled to discover her when I was doing the research for the show and there were three of her works in the exhibition Another of my favourites is the Spanish artist Juana Francis, who was making work as a direct response to the rise of fascism in Spain, and made a whole series of works that are just given numbers as titles and they go up to the 40s we have three of her numbers in the exhibition and they're huge black canvases that she's then sprayed and thrown and rubbed and kicked sand from Spain into so they feel so aggressive and there are moments where she's used white paint to kind of create lightness but they're very very visceral and angry responses to what was happening in her country this exhibition really reflects a global movement and you've included women from all corners of the world it appears so where where was this taking place not just in the u.s as most people might think of it so one of the things i found fascinating when i started to do the research was that it was a style or a way of abstract painting that was happening all over the world and i think that's what we wanted to do with the exhibition is to reposition gestural abstraction as not just being male and not just being North American and to kind of put the politics back into it because it was a very political reaction to the trauma and the anxiety of the time it was about freedom of expression freedom of movement the personal and the subjective as much as kind of the objective and so that was happening sort of in synchronicity around the world in latin america it was happening in across all of the states of southern and central america very much as a, a response to the rise of fascism in east asia it was a response to kind of socialist realism and the type of artistic practice that was supported by the governments there and in europe and north america it was i think a response to particularly to the Second World War, the Holocaust and the rise of nuclear threat. But it was also there are also artists included from the Middle East, from North Africa and from Southeast Asia who were working and thinking along similar lines. That's what we found really exciting is that all of these artists were making work in a very similar vein or work that resonated with each other's practices as this kind of liberated form of expression just picking up there on what makes these works similar stylistically what is that and I think what's particularly striking when you walk around the gallery is the use of texture on the canvases yeah I think if it's okay to say one of the things I was worried about was that the show would look very similar but actually when the works all arrived stylistically they are the same and as you say there's this incredible use of texture but we've separated the show into five themes that look at materiality and process or look at the use of symbolism and language or responses to nature and the environment and once the works are separated into those sections you can really see the differences with them as well so in the material and process section we've included lots of artists who employ texture deliberately in their work and a lot of those artists are from Latin America, so they're from Venezuela, from Peru, from Argentina, and they are very deliberately using the earth of their nation in their in their work. So they put the sand or the soil or the clay from their country into the paint and create these very heavily textured, quite aggressive paintings that feel really like a rebellion against what was happening in their countries at the time and elsewhere the texture is as important but it's more subtle or it's more I guess polite so Helen Frankenthaler famously North American artist used staining she created a technique using oil paints that would allow her to stain a canvas so the work feels very light and ephemeral and and the paint feels like it's floating which is a kind of great contrast to the much heavier works that have the sand and the clay and the earth in them.
0: Laura Smith there in conversation with Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. And that's all for today's programme. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Much more from me throughout the day. But for now, thank you for listening.